Peter is first praised for recognizing Christ as the Messianic King, then rebuked for mistaking the nature of the kingdom. So Jesus performs healings, deepens his instruction, and introduces his disciples to Moses, Elijah, and God himself to teach the difference. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Come Follow Me, lesson number 14, Thou Art the Christ, covering Matthew 16 through 17, Mark 8 through 9, and Luke 9. Today's question comes from Charlie, who asks, well, she asks a number of questions, but uh, I'll pick, Charlie, I'm sorry you have a long email here, I'll just pick a couple. Uh, first of all, she's, she's worried about the book that I've recommended, uh, Horizontal Harmony of the Four Gospels in Parallel Columns by Thomas Mumford. She's worried about the price of that ranging, as she found it, and I, I confirmed this, uh, on Amazon, ranging from $35 to $300. So obviously uh, that's true, and what happens with books that are out of print is people charge a premium for them on Amazon. However, this book is still in print, um, but in order to find it, you have to go to deseretbook.com. And the price there, uh, I on the first on the first page of results, I saw it listed between sixteen and twenty dollars. But then when you click on it, it's twenty dollars. So I believe that book cost twenty dollars. Uh, I hope you didn't pay three hundred dollars for it, Charlie. But if you did, uh, I know a man in my ward who will be very flattered. Uh, Charlie also asks about the lesson of Jesus's parables, the two parables of the the treasures found, one the treasure in the field and one the parable of the pearl of great price. She asks, the treasure that was hidden in the field was found before the field was purchased. Why didn't the finder just walk away with the treasure? Finders keepers, right? Uh, Good point, Charlie, and that's exactly right. So I kind of assume it's a little bit like the treasure at the end of National Treasure, where they go down into a little subterranean cavern and the treasure is so vast that nobody could leave with all of it without being seen. And so the point is, for the, price of the, for the mere price of the land, you can get the treasure on top of that. So the, the person buying, the seeker buying the treasure or buying the land could never have afforded the treasure, but can just barely afford the land. And then for the price of the land, the, the vast treasure that is received is so beyond anything uh, that anything in the purchase price that it, it is worth it several times over. And so that that idea is a little bit changed in the second parable, the parable of the pearl of great price, where a man seeks for a merchant who deals in pearls, seeks for that one perfect pearl and eventually finds it and spends all he has to purchase that one pearl, this perfect pearl of great price. Um, and and so Charlie asked, does that change the nature of the of the parables? And I think they're par- two parables expressing similar but different ideas because uh, the merchant buying the pearl of great price is not buying something with a hidden value. The value is apparent for everyone to see, and so therefore he's not getting a deal. The person finding a treasure in a field and then covering up the treasure, going and buying the land to a to acquire the treasure at a reduced price is is getting away with basically paying just a tiny amount, in other words, a little bit of obedience in this world and then gaining eternal life in the world to come. Whereas the, the person acquiring the pearl of great price has given everything. Uh, and in both cases, there are similarities. They, they've both given everything. But in the second case, Somebody has, has gotten something with all of its apparent value on the surface, and yet it was still worth everything. I hope that illuminates it just a little bit. There's plenty of room for reflection and, and more interpretation there. Thank you for your questions. As always, should you care to have your question answered as part of the program, email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Include your first name and your town, and I'd love to engage with you on the program. So uh, this lesson, uh, thankfully, we don't have as much, uh, as many chapters relating as many different events as we've had in the last few weeks, and so we'll be able to spend a little more time 
deepening ourselves and what's going on. So some very important events in uh, today's lesson, especially the Mount of Transfiguration and the con what's called the Confession of Peter, Peter's Confession in uh, mainstream Christianity, which is that um, Jesus asks, who, do, who, do, who does everyone saying, who, who are they all saying that I am, and who do you guys say that I am to his disciples? So we'll get to that. Uh, we'll start in now Matthew chapter 16, Mark chapter 8, Luke chapter 9. They all relate similar events. Um, so we'll start in Matthew chapter 16. Now the first thing that happens is the Pharisees and the Sadducees are asking Jesus for a sign. And so one of the things that we have, and Jesus says a wicked, First, the first thing he says is a wicked and adulterous generation asketh for a sign. Now this is an interesting uh, passage because other people also ask Jesus for signs and John in his gospel calls the miracles of Jesus his signs. And so what's going on? Why is it so terrible to ask for a sign? Well, if you read back, Matthew is not meant to be read in little, in little bits like we're reading it. Matthew sort of intended all of his uh, stories about Jesus, all of these tales to be read in context. And so maybe, you know, one or two days, but not spread out over the entire year or the or several weeks or several months. And so the point we would know if we had been reading this the way Matthew wrote it to be read is that the Pharisees and Sadducees had, have been witnessing Jesus's miracles all along. That kind of changes the meaning of what's going on when they, when they ask Jesus for a sign. Uh, so the point kind of is, you've, you've seen all these miracles, but what they wanted, so what, what were they asking? What did they want? What would have satisfied them as far as signs go? Jesus seems to know the answer. We can make a guess, which is, did they want to see, you know, a miracle done on command? We, we will tell you what we want to see, Jesus. You know, do, perform this miracle, uh, pull a rabbit from your hat, or do whatever we have pre-decided that you probably can't do. And if you can do that, then we'll believe you. In other words, force us to believe. And instead of doing something that you decide, like healing somebody that comes along, we didn't see the sick person beforehand. There's no way for us to verify. What we want you to do is take our own framework and fit your miracles into it, fit the priesthood, fit God's power, fit God's choices into exactly what we want to see, and then we will believe. So that's why Jesus calls them a wicked and adulterous generation, because they've received plenty of uh, witnesses, and they've chosen to ignore all of those witnesses. If you remember, the Pharisees and Sadducees were watching when the man sick of the palsy was lowered through the ceiling by his friends, and Jesus said, thy sins are forgiven thee, and then they were grumbling. And then Jesus said, okay, what, you know, you don't believe that I can do that, but what's harder, to say somebody's sins are forgiven or to actually heal them and, and tell them to uh, rise, rise up and pick up your bed and walk home? And so then, so you, Jesus said, so you'll know that I have the power to forgive sins. I'm going to perform this miracle for you right in front of you. And they saw that sign. This is a similar setting. It's right around the Sea of Galilee. So these may have even been some of the very same people who saw that sign. But everywhere that Jesus went in, this, in, the, in these surrounding cities, every time he would land, the word would quickly spread, Jesus of Nazareth is here, bring your sick and afflicted, or even just touch. Uh, it wasn't just one woman who wanted to touch the hem of his garment. As we learned last week, um, Jesus, many people, wanted to touch, even if it were so much as just the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made whole. So it wasn't just one person that was healed in that way either. In other words, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees have been witnessing signs and miracles from heaven all along. So now they say, show us a sign from heaven. Let us know who you are. And Jesus says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Uh, and if, if you're interested in Jonah, I, I feel like, I tried, at least, to do justice to Jonah. Jonah is one of the most fascinating books in the Old Testament. 
And so the sign, this is actually a very rich metaphor that Jesus is using. It doesn't just mean, or, or I should say, I believe there are more meanings buried here than simply uh, Christ, when Christ is killed, he's going to be in the tomb for three days and then be resurrected. It also, that there are uh, messages here about forgiveness and about traveling, what, what's happening in the interim, about traveling to hell and about what happens beforehand. So the sign of the prophet Jonas uh, is, is a very rich metaphor, and Jesus likening himself to Jonas is kind of giving, is, is sending a message to the Pharisees and Sadducees beyond the obvious to us, which is the resurrection. And so if you want to know more about that, uh, you, can, you can go back in the podcast history and download last year's episode on, on, jo- on the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. So Jesus has this encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they say, you know, show us a sign. He tells them, I'm not going to show you any additional signs. To me, before we move on from this part of the story, uh, I really like to mention a talk I've mentioned once before, which is, a talk called Stand Forever by Elder Corbridge, Elder Lawrence Cor- Corbridge, delivered at BYU. And you can find it, um, if you search for simply Stand Forever Corbridge, you'll find it. But it's part of the BYU Speeches website, which is speeches.byu.edu. And towards the end, he makes a lot of wonderful, amazing points. And in fact, uh, he he actually mentioned several of the scriptures and episodes that uh, occur in our lesson today. But towards the end of his talk, he talks about the miracles that surround us all the time that we refuse to see. And the, the simple miracle of creation that is more glorious than any other miracles. And, and I'll just read a quick ep- excerpt from that part of the, of the talk. He says, In light of what is, nothing else should surprise us. It should be easy to believe that with God all things are possible. The healing of the withered hand is not nearly as amazing as the existence of the hand in the first place. If it exists, it follows that it can certainly be fixed when it is broken. The greater event is not in its healing, but in its creation. More phenomenal than resurrection is birth. The greater wonder is not that life, having once existed, could come again, but that it ever exists at all. More amazing than raising the dead is that we live at all, a silent heart that beats again, is not nearly as amazing as the heart that beats within your breast right now. And he goes on along those same lines, but I don't want to give you too many spoilers. It's a wonderful talk, and the point is well taken. Why is it so much more amazing that something could be restored to uh, a state of functioning when the fact that it functioned in the first place was pretty incredible and we ignored it? So Jesus has obviously performed many healings by this point, and one of the healings that he performs is, in, in it's related slightly differently in the different accounts that we study today, but is healing the sight of either one or two blind men. And so th- this, th- this idea is still within Elder Corbridge's talk, which is, why is it so much more amazing? Why, why wouldn't they be willing to see not only the the miracles of Jesus for what they are, a testimony that he comes from God, but also the question Jesus is, is not asking but implying is, why aren't you willing to see any of the many miracles that surround you all the time, let alone the miracles that I have performed right in front of you? So Jesus and the disciples, they get on a boat and they, and they leave that particular shore of the Sea of Galilee, head, heading across it. And as they're on the boat, Jesus tells, in, in one account, he tells the disciples to beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in Mark's account, he says the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees and of Herod. And they think, okay, well, uh, we've, we forgot to bring the bread today, so maybe that's why he's telling us that, so that we don't go out and buy yeast from them. So they, they took it quite literally, and Jesus says, wait a minute. You, you all were there, and, and one of the stories we didn't really go into was the feeding of the 4,000, because it's so similar to the feeding of the 5,000, but we talked about the multiplying of bread last week. So Jesus says, you, you all were there when I 
when, when we multiplied bread, and how many baskets did you take up after I fed the 5,000, or we, or we fed, he doesn't necessarily say I fed, but how many baskets did you take up of bread after the 5,000 were fed? And they said 12. How many baskets did you take up after we fed the 4,000? And they said seven. So he says, okay then, why do you think I'm talking about actual bread? I'm not worried about the presence or the absence of bread. And the way that the, the Gospel of Matthew describes it is to say, oh, that's when they understood that he meant the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I actually would go one step further than just saying doctrine. What Jesus is cautioning them against is by, by using this word leaven, which he's already likened the kingdom of God to a small bit of leaven put into three measures of meal, which, which is then leavens the entire amount. So in other words, a leaven spreads. So he's not just talking about the doctrines, but he's talking about the ideas and their attitudes. So, and he says, beware of these ideas and attitudes that are espoused by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Herod because they will spread. They're the kind of thing that spreads from one person to another. And just as the kingdom of God can spread, so these evil ideas can also take root and spread from one person to another or from having a small portion of your beliefs to taking over your entire belief system. And that's an interesting idea. Jesus really doesn't say much about this elsewhere in the scriptures. So I thought I'd, I thought I'd do a little bit of research and, and, th- and thinking about what that leaven might be. Now, the Pharisees is not too hard to identify, and that is th- that they are so legalistic that the slightest infraction makes them want to kill Jesus. So they want to kill Jesus over things like breaking the Sabbath day or blaspheming when they're not even willing to investigate the truth of what Jesus says. They're simply willing to assume that he must be blaspheming and then execute him. And so the Pharisees are legalistic. And the Sadducees, by contrast, if you read elsewhere in the New Testament, it says the the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. In fact, the Sadducees didn't believe that God did much of the supernatural at all. And they didn't believe in life after death or life before birth. They didn't believe that in the spirit itself. And so believing in God only had effect while you were on the earth. They did believe in the scriptures, but they, the way they read the scriptures was to interpret them as saying there is no afterlife. And in other words, and I mean, this is sort of a, a, philosophic, a philosophical leap, but it's one I'm willing to make. In other words, there is no true justice. Because obviously, and this is a, an idea that finds expression all over the Old Testament, Obviously, there is no true justice on this earth alone. And it's, it's not only implied, but it's explicitly stated in a few places that, that God will make everything right, but we have to wait. And, and by implication, we have to wait until we die in order to reach that point. But the Sadducees rejected all of that. And so the, the Sadducees' leaven, or their, their doctrine, their attitude, was one of rationalism meaning we reject anything that you can't prove to us and, in, in effect, force us to believe as they tried with Jesus, asking for a sign. And the Pharisees, one thing that they both shared was this idea that we want to protect our power. So it's, it's not just rationalism and it's not just legalism, but it's also both of those things combined with the sort of pride and entitlement that says, my power over the, the money changers in the temple is so important that I'm willing to kill to protect it. Uh, you remember Jesus decried the way that the Pharisees interpreted the law when he said, you're willing to break the commandment that says you have to honor your father and your mother and you have to take care of them by, by claiming that the things your father and your mother might need, oh, mom and dad, sorry, this is, I've, I've offered this to God or I've, I've pledged this to God, and so therefore it has to remain in my possession. I can't give it to you. So I can't, I can't provide the kind of support that the law of Moses tells me that I have to do and that I should be executed for failing to do. But because I've already pledged this, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to keep it. 
And so they used the very law of Moses as an excuse to break the spirit of the law of Moses. And Jesus called them out for that. They didn't like it one bit. These are the kinds of things that Jesus is talking about when he says the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And of course it's contagious because everyone can see, well, if they're getting away with this, then the only way I can get ahead is to participate in it. Now, what was the leaven of Herod? We saw, we saw exactly illustrated last week what kind of choices Herod was willing to make. And Jesus is talking about, we can assume, he's talking about Herod Antipas right here and not necessarily Herod the Great. So my interpretation of the leaven of Herod is the kind of man who's willing to cover up his sins, to gratify his pride. He's willing to kill John the Baptist, a man he knows is a man of God and he fears in order to uh, look good to those who are attending his birthday party. So Herod's leaven is one of hedonism and pride, but also opportunism, because Herod has agreed that the Romans came in, and the way that they preserved their own power was to allow a, a, a puppet ruler from among the oppressed population to have the figurehead position. And so what they needed to f find was somebody who was craven enough and hungry enough for power among the Jews that they would actually be a Roman, be subject to the Romans and oppress their own people. And that's the kind of ruler that they found in the family of Herod the Great. And so it's not only hedonism, but it's opportunism. And it's a willingness to sacrifice principles to, to comfort and privilege that is the leaven of Herod. So Jesus is telling the disciples all these things that, that you're witnessing. Beware. Beware of that. Now, it's no accident that this uh, admonition appears right here. The next thing that happens is the event that gives our lesson, its title, which is then Jesus and the disciples, they, they leave the environs of the Sea of Galilee. They go up north a little ways to a place called Caesarea Philippi which is where uh, Herod Antipas's brother Philip was ruling. And presumably, Jesus was in trouble, uh, probably getting a little bit of heat from the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he didn't, to avoid violence, they went up north where things were quieter and not as many people were uh, following Jesus around all the time. So Jesus takes this opportunity to ask the disciples, who is everybody saying that I am? And their answer varies they say, well, some people say that you are Elijah because uh, what Malachi said at the, at the end of our Old Testament, not the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, but what Malachi said was, behold, I will send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So Jews were looking for the return of Elijah, and today they still are. Uh, you may be aware that... Um, at a Jewish dinner table, and especially at, at festival time, at Passover meals, there's an empty seat left there for Elijah in case he should return during the meal. He can come in and be welcomed and have a seat. So some people said that, that Jesus was the return of Elijah, and some said that he was John the Baptist come back to life, and some said that he was Jeremiah or one of the other Old Testament prophets. So those, those would have had to have been some of the people that, that believed in the resurrection from the dead. But so, so these are some of the answers, that, that some of the rumors that are going around about Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, who do you all hear? Who do you think I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ. And there are some different uh, accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of, of what follows. Thou art the Christ of God, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, or thou art the Christ. Jesus says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood hath not revealed it to me, but my Father which is in heaven. So J Peter is immediately recognized as having had a witness, a spiritual witness of who Jesus is. However, Peter is mistaken in a very crucial point, and we're going to spend most of the rest of the lesson talking about what that is. So the first thing we have to understand is what, what Peter meant when he said, Thou art the Christ. What did that mean exactly to Peter? For us, we think 
that Peter must have, well, unless we're thinking about it, unless we're trying to understand it in context, we're thinking he must have meant the same thing that we think, which is the Christ is obviously the Savior of the world, the person who would die for us and be resurrected, the person who would take upon himself our sins. That is what the Christ means to us. The, the word Christ, Christos in Greek, is a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which we also have as Messiah, meaning the Anointed One. So let's talk a little bit about where, what Peter's beliefs were about the Messiah and where they were grounded. Uh, if you have your scriptures in front of you, the, there are maybe four, I mean, there are dozens of chapters that we could reference, but there's four that I have sort of identified for us to look at to get a better understanding of what Peter meant. The first one we'll go to is 1 Chronicles chapter 17. This is what what is commonly called today the Davidic covenant. And at one point, David receives the promise when he tries to build, or he intends to build, a temple to God in Jerusalem. And through Nathan the prophet, God says, no, it's not your job to build my temple, but I am going to establish your house. And this is 1 Chronicles Chapter 17, starting in verse 11. It shall come to pass when thy days be expired that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him that was before thee, but I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forevermore. So this is the Davidic covenant, the idea that one of the line of David will at some point be placed on a throne, kind of like David's powerful kingdom that was subject to no other kingdom. This is the beginning of the, of the messianic idea in, in ancient Israel, which is that some follower of David or somebody often called the stem of Jesse, the root of Jesse, or David himself. Um, The Messiah is called by many different names throughout the Old Testament. But it's always this idea that it's the person in whom, one of the sons of David in whom, God will establish the house of David forever, and, and never again will that king be subjugated by any other foreign power. Now, obviously, this doesn't have a spiritual connotation as it comes out immediately. A lot of people thought at the time of Solomon, this is obviously the fulfillment of this promise that God made to David. He's going to establish this kingdom forever. The problem is the kingdom didn't continue forever, and so the Jews had to look for another fulfillment of this promise. One of the solutions to that question was in Psalm, the second Psalm. So the second Psalm reads, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's the Messiah, saying, let us break their bands asunder. So this is is a number of rulers uh, that are paying tribute to the king of Israel, the Messiah, and they're saying, "Let's, let's break ourselves free and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. So in other words, that that God in that day is going to uphold his anointed as he's king over everyone, and no one is going to be able to uh, get free from being subject to the king uh, in whom the Lord has delighted. And that must have been a very comforting doctrine to the people of Jesus' time, oppressed as they were by their Roman overlords. So Isaiah chapter 11 is another important messianic chapter, and this one will be very familiar to you. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the word branch came to be almost synonymous with the Messiah later on, which is one of the reasons why um, Matthew said uh, that when Jesus was born in Nazareth, he said, it, that that it, the scripture might be fulfilled that he shall come from Nazareth or that she, he shall be a Nazarene because the word for Nazareth is Nazareth, which is also means a twig. So this is one of the, the ways in which Matthew saw that Jesus fulfilled uh, Isaiah chapter 11. But uh, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, 
With righteousness shall he judge the poor. He shall reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And so this is this is a king who's so powerful that he knows who's good and who's evil, and he's able to reward and, and bring justice even upon the earth. He's, he's able to take God's justice and enact it because that's how wise and how powerful the, this Messiah, this anointed is. That's Isaiah chapter 11. And then obviously the image from Daniel, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the image from Daniel chapter 2, which is the kingdoms of the earth are represented in this composite statue. And Daniel gives this interpretation, then all of a sudden a, a stone cut out of the mountain without hands rolls down tumbles down the mountain, crashes into the, this figure, and utterly destroys it, grinds it to powder, and then fills the entire earth. This is the Messiah. This is the, the Messiah is the, the leader or the driver of that, of that powerful stone in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And, and uh, this is the idea that Peter had when he said to Jesus, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's saying, I know that you're the one who's going to be this son of David who's going to lead us in this way. And I've seen you do all these miracles, so I know you can't be anyone else, and God has confirmed it to me by the Spirit. So that was what, that was what Peter was thinking. Now, he, he did get it right. Jesus indeed was the Messiah. And so we'll, we'll, we'll get back to a little, bit, uh, a little bit later about what problems that Peter's misconception might have caused him later on. But first, let's talk about Christ's response. So the first thing that Jesus says was, flesh and blood hath not revealed it to thee. In other words, you've, you've received this from the Holy Ghost. Then he says, verily I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, or I will, I will build my kingdom, right? Uh, and this, the fact that Peter is sort of a play on words in Greek, the, the word Peter means a stone, or Petro and Petra means a stone and uh, a rock. So the, the Catholic interpretation of this verse is to say that Jesus meant Peter is the rock upon which he's going to build his church. And a Latter-day Saint interpretation of this verse is to say, no, what he meant was, I'm going to build my church on the rock of Revelation. Now, enough prophets have made that point that it's, uh, there's no point in arguing with that interpretation. It, it is indeed the rock of revelation. However, there's also almost certainly more going on in what Christ is saying, upon this rock I will build my church. First of all, um, this, is, this is one of the teachings from my mission, and, and it was brought to my mind as I read this chapter um, and I don't, I don't know necessarily that this is any official interpretation, but what we used to say when we were trying to teach the importance of proper authority is we would say, when we, when we taught the discussion uh, about the restoration, we would say, power from heaven depends on three things, and, and we would take our little discussion booklet and we would take three of our fingers and make a little triangle or a little base, a little tripod, and we would rest the discussion booklet on top of those three. And we'd say, if you had less than three supports, then it will fall and you pull one of your fingers away and then, you know, the book falls to one side or the other. And this was a little object lesson that I learned early in my mission and every missionary sort of had their version of it, but usually most people tried to use it. And so we said, you know, the, the church of God needs three things on which it depends. One is revelation, one is prophets and apostles, and one is priesthood authority. And I actually, I don't think I ever knew as a, mission, as a young missionary where this came from. And now I realize it came right, from, right here from the uh, 16th chapter of, of Matthew. Because here in the verse, or here in this, in this account, uh, is first Peter saying something that was given to him by the Holy Ghost. And then Jesus says, Verily I say unto thee, Thou art Peter. He's talking, and upon this rock, so he's talking about the importance of prophets and apostles. So the first thing he says is, flesh and, bl and blood hath, hath not revealed it to thee. So you've had a revelation, you are an apostle. 
And then I, later on, Jesus says, I will give thee the keys of the kingdom. So he's talking about priesthood authority. So Jesus himself establishes all three of these little supports for the church of God. Now, I haven't heard, uh, you know, a general authority or a, uh, one of the first presidency or Quorum of the Twelve have that exact interpretation. So I'm not sure how authoritative it is, but I thought it was interesting. Um, to me, it, it stuck out because I remember teaching it that way so many times. What I would say is that the rock to Peter would probably have summoned an image of the, the one thing called the rock in the Old Testament, which is Jehovah himself. So there are a few different times which God himself has called the rock of the people of Israel, that he's our rock upon which we build. Jesus has used this image also already by this point when he said, that man who takes the, the teachings that I give and follows them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. So the rock in that case is obedience. And anybody who doesn't build, build upon this rock of obedience is building upon a sandy foundation. So Jesus saying that I'm going to build my church upon the rock would, would also summon, in, in, in a contemporary listener, it would summon those images as well. Somebody who'd been following Jesus would remember that a building built on the rock is built upon obedience to God's word. And so the rock of revelation, the rock of prophets and apostles, the rock of the keys of the kingdom, as, as the mainstream Christians understand it. And then the rock of Christ himself, the rock of uh, the Redeemer, the rock, and, as, and this is both a Jewish and a Christian idea, that Jehovah, the Redeemer, is the rock of Israel. All of these would have been summoned, not just the rock of Revelation, as Jesus made this claim to Peter. Now, what happens after Jesus and Peter have this exchange, an exchange which would have been very affirming for Peter, after they have this exchange, then Jesus begins to teach, it says he begins to teach them how he would be killed and then raised again on the third day. And so, the, the word is actually used in Matthew is actually rebuked. Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, this isn't, no, Jesus, this isn't what's supposed to happen. Now, I've given you a little bit of background so you can understand why Peter would, do, would presume to such an extent that after having already called him the Son of God and the Messiah, that he would consider it his place to rebuke anything Jesus said. It's because the idea was so deeply ingrained that a Messiah is not somebody who is defeated. A Messiah is victorious. Messiahs don't get killed in Jewish theology. Messiahs win. Messiahs conquer and then they rule. And God supports their rule to the point where it's everlasting. All of the subject kingdoms can never get free of it. So this is, this is what Messiah means. There aren't two meanings. So Jesus now, he understands, first of all, that he has to kill this idea. He has to make sure that the disciples get the difference between what they expect and who he actually is and what is on the program for him to do. He's been doing it all along through something we've called the upside-down kingdom. So what Jesus has been trying to teach is, and he, and he began it even before the Sermon on the Mount, but it found its highest expression in the Sermon on the Mount, which is, instead of resisting evil, what we're going to do is we're going to meet evil with love. Instead of taking the strongest person, taking wealth from everyone else and concentrating it, we're going to give generously to the poor. And he's already, later on in this lesson, but he's already expressed it. If anybody, if you, if you think you want to be great, then what you should actually be is the servant of everyone. Now, there's a reason those ideas are put right here. It's because it's a contrast between what Peter believes and what, incidentally, what the Pharisees and Sadducees also believe. So they shared this belief with Peter that 
the kingdom of the Messiah. This is the kind of sign that they were asking for. They were saying, okay, show us a sign then. Show us a sign of your victory. Now, the, it's interesting that in the, in, in the Luke chapter that we studied today, this incident immediately follows the feeding of the 5,000 because what did the 5,000 want to do with Jesus? They wanted to take him and immediately turn him into an earthly ruler. This is the same thing that Peter wanted to do. Now, Jesus uses, when, when Peter starts to tell Jesus, this isn't the way it's going to happen. You're going to be a ruler. You're going to be a king. You're our Messiah. You're, you're the new David. And David was a victorious ruler that everybody paid tribute to. And Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem and had the largest kingdom of any of the Jewish rulers. So you're, what you're going to do is you're going to confront the power of Rome and you're going to use the power of God to help us be able to worship the way we want to rather than having to do it the way the Romans tell us we can. This is what Peter had in mind. And we don't know how much of that he actually got out, but this is undoubtedly what he believed. And Jesus' response, if we don't understand what's going on, it sounds unduly harsh, which is, get thee behind me, Satan. Or as we might translate it today, get out of here. And he uses the word Satan, which in Hebrew, the evolution of the idea of Satan went from someone who is just seen as... It's often translated as a prosecutor or an adversary, somebody who accuses. We, we call Satan the adversary for that reason. It, it evolved from that sort of idea. After the Jews spent time in Persia, in, their, in the Persian exile, and came in contact with a group known as the Zoroastrians, who had a religion which, in which the entire creation was Every aspect of creation was just a manifestation of the eternal battle between good and evil. Then the Jews adopted that idea and started to see Satan as the embodiment of evil. And they started to have a better understanding of exactly who Satan was by understanding that life is a struggle between good and evil. And so by New Testament times, this is what the understanding of Satan was, that he is the embodiment of evil that there is someone who represents pure evil. So Satan, that would be Hasatan, or the Satan, would be uh, anybody who is an accuser. But Satan used as a name would be Satan himself. So it seems like what Jesus is saying is, you're being an adversary, you're being an accuser, you're being somebody who's opposed to, my, to exactly what I want to accomplish. So I need you to get out of here with that idea. Jesus has used this exact language before, elsewhere in the New Testament. The third temptation in the wilderness, when Satan said, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will just fall down and worship me. So the, that language is deliberately meant to connect that earlier episode to this one. Because if, if we see the connection, then we can start to recognize that not only is Peter sharing the leaven of the, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which is he's seeing Jesus as the kind of, only one kind of Messiah. He's limiting him. But also recognizing that what Peter is trying to push Jesus into is the exact thing that Satan was trying to push Jesus into, which is you can have all the power in the world. You can take this world and you can dominate it. Now, that is... Satan's idea of how we should be made to do the right thing is being forced into making good choices. And there are some indications in the Hebrew Scriptures that that, that is not what God had in mind. And the, the one that comes into my mind is Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, when God says, I will cause them to walk in my statutes by replacing their, their stony heart with a heart of flesh. So in the, in, the, in the latter days when I come to create a new covenant with my people, I'm going to actually change their hearts, and I'm going to cause them to watch, walk in my statutes. And I, keep, I know I keep referring to these scriptures, but um, in Jeremiah 31, God says that I'm going to write the law in their hearts 
So what he, the way he's going to cause us to walk in his statutes is by showing us such unforeseen and unpredictable mercy that we choose to walk in his statutes. So th- this, this idea finds a little bit more expression in just a moment. Um, so this, all these things are put in a very specific order for a, for a good reason. So the next thing that happens is Jesus starts to teach them what kind of Messiah he actually is. So Jesus' point is, I'm not the Messiah this, this time around. He, he, he says, look, there are some of you who are here with, us, with me now who are going to live. You're not going to taste of death until you see the kingdom of God coming in glory. This is Jesus' first indication that there are actually two comings of the Messiah. And what he's, what he's trying to get across is, God has trying, been trying to teach for thousands of years that this sort of salvation operates on choice. It operates on us choosing to do the right thing because God has shown us an unaccountable amount of mercy. There is no accounting for how much mercy is God is showing us. He has forgiven our sins, and therefore, he's changed our hearts. That is the nature of the Messiah, and, it, and it's completely opposite from what you would expect. He says to the, to the disciples, whoever of you would, would want, if you have a desire to be first, then you shall be last. And this is the ultimate expression of the idea that I've been trying to get across since we began studying the New Testament, which is this is a powerful idea that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. It applies to the people of Israel because Jesus is called to minister only to them during his mortal ministry. And yet the disciples are soon very quickly called upon to take the gospel to all the world. It applies to the kind of kingdom that in Daniel chapter 7 is represented as a beast. The beast is first, but the Son of Man, who appears also as the, as the overriding judge, the powerful judge in Janu- Daniel chapter 7, in that vision of Daniel, shall be, even though he comes last, he shall be first, and those who were first shall be last. But now Christ is telling us it applies to each of us individually in the way that we choose to follow God's will. If we want to be first among other people, if we do it, we have to do it backwards. If we want to fit in with the kingdom of Christ, the way we do it is we're the servant of everyone else. The king isn't actually the one that receives all of the service. He's the one out there doing the service. Now, I've mentioned that there are only a few times when Jesus says explicitly, I'm now quoting Isaiah. But here is one uh, passage where I believe that he is quoting Isaiah without saying it. When he says, if anyone would be greatest of all, let him be your servant. Jesus is referring to this suffering servant from Isaiah. He's, he's now teaching the disciples, look, there is a scriptural basis for the kind of Messiah that I am. You're just not looking, you're not reading the right scriptures and interpreting them in the right order. And it's in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. When Isaiah reveals that Yahweh has said, my servant shall be smitten, and he's not going to be somebody that anyone looks at and says, oh, that's an obvious Messiah, let's follow him. But instead, it's somebody who receives the suffering of other people, and he becomes a servant. And in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, we read, he was oppressed he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Now there's one image that that would bring, bring up for any Hebrew, and that is the, the lamb killed on the Day of Atonement for the sins of all of the nation. Verse 8 of Isaiah 53, He was taken from prison and from judgment, And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Now this has a very unambiguous meaning. It means he's killed. And Jesus is telling them right now, number one, whoever's going to be greatest, let him be the servant. And number two, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to come back on the third day. Let's, Let's continue in Isaiah 53. 
He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Let's skip to verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So even though this suffering servant has been cut off out of the land of the living, now he is prolonging his days, and the pleasure of the Lord is prospering in his hand. So this is the way in which the Messiah of Isaiah 53 has a kingdom that continues forever, is that he is going to be cut off from the land of the living. He's going to be executed and then he is going to be brought back to life. It's, it's not that hard to see that in, in this passage of Isaiah, and, and this is what Jesus is getting across. Like, this has been foreseen, this has been foretold for centuries, you guys. This is the kind of Messiah that I am, and I've been showing you that everything is upside down. The way that you think that the Messiah is going to rule is just right in accordance with the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Sadducees and especially the leaven of Herod. These are the beasts that rule the world, the kind of pharaohs that you've had throughout your entire long centuries-long history of dealing with the powers of the earth. And I have turned that on its head on purpose. I have rebuked Satan and told him to get behind me because what Satan wants me to do is be exactly like all of them. And I refuse to do that. I'm not going to force people to do what's right, and I'm not going to concentrate power and wealth in one place. Instead, I'm going to serve everyone, and I'm going to give people so much mercy that they choose to, to follow my will, and that is the way that I'm going to cause them to walk in my statutes and change their hearts and actually write the law upon their hearts rather than force them to walk it with their feet, with their footsteps. And so these two accounts are very deliberately put one after the other. The, the account where Christ starts to teach them this. And then Jesus says, there are those of you who won't taste of death. And then right after that, in, in Matthew, there are two sep- there's a chapter break separating those two. But in Mark, he says, there are those of you who won't taste of death until you see the, the kingdom of God coming in glory. And then the very next verse, they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what are they seeing? They're seeing the glory of God. They're seeing the kingdom of God coming in glory. And so uh, one interpretation is for us to read that verse and say, oh, some of the some of the Jesus' apostles were going to be translated, and therefore they wouldn't taste of death until they saw him in his second coming. And that is very, I mean, we we know that that's true of, of John, the beloved. However, uh, Peter later on wrote about this experience. In, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter wrote, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. In other words, we, we're, not, we're not following in a made-up story when we, when we follow Christ. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter is talking explicitly about Christ's coming, talking about his experience, on the Mount of Transfiguration. So this is the way that Peter interpreted what Jesus said, is that you're not going to taste of death until you see the coming of the kingdom of God. And then right afterwards, a week later, they were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, witnessing the coming of the kingdom of God. It was just a a foretaste of the great glory that would fill the whole earth. But for Peter and James and John... It was an absolute vision of what it could be like. They saw Christ in his glory and were transfigured before God himself. And the point of that was to show that God is, of course, capable of coercing belief. I mean, here you are seeing his glory. If everyone were to see this, there would be no one who was disobedient. And yet what Jesus is saying is, I've decided that the way that the earthly ministry of the Messiah is going to unfold is that all of these things are hidden and I'm going to instead have no form nor comeliness that anyone would think that I am a ruler that that has been foreseen since the time of Isaiah I'm not going to come in glory even though I have this glory so you can see exactly why I'm doing this you can see what kind of Messiah that I am 
Now another teach another teaching that Jesus gave just before the the vision on the Mount of Transfiguration was, therefore let anyone who would follow me let him take up his cross. And quite often we interpret that as meaning take up the burden of resisting sin. Now that is a very clear meaning of what Jesus said because we understand what it means to take up the cross. That's what Jesus did when he took up his cross. But what would Peter and those other disciples listening, what would they have understood? So this is kind of similar to the bread of life discourse where Jesus says, anyone who wants to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. We understand that as meaning the sacrament. But a listener to Jesus who heard take up his cross, it would be very similar to saying, anyone who wants to follow me, let him put a, a noose around his neck and, and be willing to be hung, because that's what a cross was. It was a method of execution. And so it, it would, and another way of saying it is, anyone who wants to follow me, if you're going to save your life, you have to lose it. So if you want to follow me, stand in front of this firing squad with me and be willing to give up your life. You have to die. And, and what he's saying to Peter is, you have to die according to the things of, the, of this world. You are so attuned to what everyone sees and whether they see a powerful king coming along who's going to force them to believe and is going to conquer. You're so, so attuned to the things of man that you've forgotten the things of God which is that I want to let everyone have their choice in how they're going to align themselves. I don't want to have an earthly enticement for people to join a heavenly kingdom. I don't want people to see me in my glory before they accept the mercy that I extend to them. This wasn't because Jesus had no other option. That is what he was showing them on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's because this is precisely how he designed it to be. This is the best way for him to get us to follow his will is for us to experience the inequity that exists in the world and choose God anyway and make an effort to rectify it as best we can the way Jesus did, to follow his path. As he said, pick up his cross and follow me. We die to the things of the world. We're taking these beastly kingdoms of the world and we're rejecting them and instead we're willing to live in the upside-down kingdom of God, which says that humility is strength and serving is power. So right after uh, the Mount of Transfiguration story, there's this, there's this encounter with a man who's, whose son has been possessed by a spirit to such an extent that it's causing him to do self-destructive harm to his own body. He throws himself in the fire and he throws himself in the water. And the disciples are not able to cast out the spirit, but Jesus is. And before it happens, Jesus says, If you can have faith, then all things are possible to him who believeth. And this man says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And this is a scriptural passage that has been um, masterfully addressed by Elder Holland in his talk from the April 2013 conference when he talks about how what this man had was a desire to believe. And he knew his belief wasn't perfect. He didn't try to hide that. But what he did was he, he expressed his belief and then asked for God's help with the portion of his um, feeling that was, that was in the opposite direction from belief. What a, and what a powerful message it is. I recommend that talk. It's called, Lord, I Believe. And I... The point I wanted to make was, this is in stark contrast to Peter's attitude, which is rebuking Christ for saying, this is the kind of Messiah I am. This, this particular coming is not Isaiah chapter 11, it's Isaiah chapter 53. And Peter's saying, wait, no, God, change your plans to fit my expectations. And what this man who wants his son to be healed is instead saying is, God, help me change my expectations to fit your plans. And I don't know whether this was on purpose, but I would guess that it is because uh, the, these gospel, the writers of the Gospels were not literary dunces. They just 
It, they existed in a time before a lot of the traditions and the conventions of modern literature just did not exist. And so the ways in which we would expect someone to represent point of view and to get inside people's heads just hadn't been invented yet. And so this is how they do it. There's actually a fair amount of, of even such advanced techniques as dramatic irony and foreshadowing that exist within the Gospels to a surprising extent. And so I would guess that this isn't 100% on purpose, is that we can see Peter, the one that had been shown that Jesus was the Christ by the Holy Ghost, and Christ himself admitted it. He then could have the attitude that, that taking on the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees, that God had to change his plans to fit his expectations. And then right away we see a man who is not sure about his, even the state of his own belief, but is willing to be humble enough to have God change that because he had a desire to believe. And this is the kind of person who is going to receive the promise of Ezekiel chapter 36, where God will cause us to walk in his statutes. This is the person who lives in the upside-down kingdom, who is capable of being humble and being changed by God and having his unbelief cured by a miracle of Christ rather than asking for a sign the way the Pharisees and the Sadducees did. Starting at least as early as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray by saying, by ending his prayers with, lead us not into the test, which is the, if you remember, we talked a little bit about this word perazzo, which is the temptation or the test. Lord, don't lead us into this test. Help us to escape our tests. But if we have to be in the test, then deliver us from the evil one. And so Jesus wasn't willing to be led back into the same temptation that Satan tried to get him with in the wilderness, to be led back to become one of the standard kings of this world, to be the king that everyone expected the Messiah to be. Peter was inviting Jesus to become a beast, like one of the beasts in Daniel chapter 7. But Jesus chose to be a human being. That's what it means to be the son of man, to be someone who appears who has the form of a human being. It's time we understood that that's what God created us to be. That's why he made us in his image, so that we could be human beings rather than beasts, so that we could be part of this kingdom that seems so upside down. But that's actually how humans were always intended to act towards each other, was to desire to believe, was to approach each other with mercy and love, was to share the blessings that we receive from God was to consider ourselves stronger the more humble we become. This is Jesus' whole point in, in having to come to earth twice, in coming once in humility and once in power, is that he can teach us to understand that that's what a human being is. The only person who ever got it right, everyone else to some degree or, or another, has adopted some form of beast within them. And Jesus is saying, if you let me, I'll lead you in the way. I will cause you to walk in my statutes, which is the way that you excise this beast from out, from out of your body, from out of your heart. You desire to believe, and I will perform a miracle in your life and heal you. I will take my fingers and place them on your eyes, and then when you open them, you will see. The entire message of Jesus' mortal ministry was to show us that though, as human beings, we share a metabolism with the animals, we share the image of God within us, and we share the spirit of God. Being a human being is not the same as being a beast. Being a human being is acting like God, receiving his mercy, and changing our unbelief into belief by the power of choice. And if we can make that choice, then the miracles that surround us every day, all of them become signs. And we no longer have to ask for signs to follow us because we recognize that God has been providing them all along. And the path of expectations that we keep hoping to get God to help us travel 
becomes the path of repentance where we allow God to change our behavior and to change our beliefs and to convert our unbelief into faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.